This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Martin Armstrong, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. How is the information war treating you? <clears throat> I'm just so busy all the time. It's just, I'm not, I don't really pay a lot of attention to them, but um, definitely interesting the last few years. How interesting. I mean, I remember my mother said she remembers everything from the moon landing to the Vietnam War, but this last two years has been the strangest. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it is kind of strange in a sense that I know most of the players. I mean, um, I mean, I, even when Klaus Schwab had released his premiere for his video in New York, he invited me up, you know, I mean, you know, I've at least shaken hands with these people. So, I mean, I've, I've looked into their eyes. So it's, it is a bit interesting from my perspective that I actually know most of the people that everybody's talking about um, rather than just speculating. But when you say you know them, you, you're, kind of, you're kind of saying that from an arm's distance. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> um, I mean, I've known a lot of them over the years. I've watched their ideas, their theories, uh, things of that, that nature. Um, like, you know, Klaus Schwab is, is really an academic. And most of your academics tend to be very left wing, very Marxist in, in many ways. Um, and I mean, I've met many of them around the world from, you know, uh, Melbourne, you know, L.A., New York, I mean, Europe. Um, it, it's it's interesting to watch the, the way they think and what is behind it. Uh, <clears throat> but I would say there's there's largely two schools of thought that I think are behind it, which come from economics. Uh, <clears throat> the first being Marx. Uh, and you have to understand that there's, it's more than just simply communism and taking everybody's assets and things of that nature. At the root of it is this idea that uh, we are just like ants on a farm. And, you know, taking the, the personal assets away from us was supposed to eliminate greed, you know. And it, it, it's trying to change human nature. And it's not even understanding human nature. That's, so you have a whole line of economic thought where the academics go. And even Keynes went down that road. We can manipulate them by raising interest rates, lowering interest rates, etc. Um, then you have the other side, which you know they don't want to listen to, uh, that is basically saying, "Look, uh, the economy is so complex, and it, it really kind of emerges from Adam Smith." Uh, and <clears throat> Smith, most people don't realize, but he was. Uh, initially arguing against what were the physiocrats, which were from France. And the question there was, what is wealth? And they concluded that wealth was agriculture. And it kind of made sense back there. You were talking about probably 70% of the economy, if not more, was agrarian. All right. So it's really pre-industrial revolution, all that sort of stuff. So um, that kind of led to the development of empire. You know, then the more land you possessed was the richer your nation was. All right. And Smith basically said, you know, he went and, and really tried to understand what the economy was, how did it function? And 
that's where he came up with what people call the invisible hand, that everybody does their own thing, figuring out their own self-interest. And so the wealth of a nation, uh, although he didn't say it that way, is really its people. Uh, it is human nature. Um, and, you know, that's what the left the, just does not understand. They want to be able to control us. And, and that leads to the big conflict. All right. So that's like Schwab saying, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You know, uh, they don't understand human nature. If you eliminate that, I mean, there are still people behind the old Iron Curtain that wish the, you know, communist era would come back because they don't have to make any decisions. Mm. They don't have to worry about a career. Uh, here's the broom. Go sweep the street. Oh, OK, fine. Thank you. They don't even have to think about what they're doing. Um, you know, I had uh, one friend in, in West Germany and when the wall came down. His family had property over there and he was going to go get it back. And and he said, oh, he's going to open up factories over there. And the my argument with him was that, oh, they're German, so they're going to work really hard. I said, I don't think you're, you understand. You know, they're not, you know, just because they're German doesn't make them work hard. It's culture. So he went over, did that. And basically went bankrupt. And we met later and he goes, you know, it took, you know, three of them to do the work of just one. I said, what do you think? They would never had to think about work. Um, you know, that was it. So you, you have a, it's the people that make things happen. And the, the United States because of its freedom that way, ended up with uh, an economy that became the world's largest consumer economy. Mm. All right. So then you had Germany making their cars, trying to sell it to all Americans, China. Um, they had export-oriented economies. Uh, and <clears throat> so in that sense, the United States helped the world rise out of World War II. But it was the American consumer. It wasn't a economic theory, per se, or an economic directive from White House or anything of that nature. It's just that everybody following their own self-interest ends up creating the system. It's, it's, it's much more like a, um, I would say, like a rainforest. That one tiny species is this, is the food supply for another, and so on. You remove one, and it creates a ripple effect through the whole system that we have no idea. I mean, Australia, you know, <clears throat> realized that by bringing in various different animals to try and control one thing, and then they ended up destroying their own uh, ecosystem. I mean, you, you can't do that. You know, it's it's much more complicated. And the economy is the same thing. It's far more complicated than any government can possibly contemplate. That whatever you do in some sort of regulation has a serious impact. Uh, <clears throat> for example, they were going after it, you know this you know hatred of the rich, and then you know inheritance taxes and things of this nature. Okay, so fine. Um, the net effect was the destruction of small farms because a farmer, you know, he died, his family came in and all of a sudden the government says, well, this land is really worth this. You got to pay taxes on that. Next thing you know, they have to sell part of the land to pay the taxes to keep whatever they can. So it ended up having a negative effect of reducing private farms. And then you have big collectives. Um, you know, you, you know, there, there's a certain, it's not cash per se that you can just say, oh, he had too much, so give me some of it. Um, it it's a different complex issue. I mean, even you take these people with, you know, they call all oh, the billionaires. Well, why are they billionaires? 
it's not cash in the bank. It's the value of a stock. They started a company, you know, it goes up, etc. But uh, I mean, if <clears throat> the head of Amazon suddenly stood up and says, well, I'm going to sell all my stock tomorrow. Do you think it's going to stay at the same price? <laughs> I mean, it's going to, you know, it will probably collapse, you know, by at least 30, 40 percent. That's interesting. So, I mean, Sorry. I, a I, lot I, of the value I, yeah. is the person running it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Confidence in that person. Isn't that sorry? Isn't that what Ludwig von Mises wrote about? Uh, a human action, I think it was. Yes, there's some. I mean, everybody's seen a little bit of a glimpse of this, mm. um, and like, I think that little by little, you have to put it all together. Uh, each each one saw a piece of the puzzle, um, and. <clears throat> What I'm saying is that I think what Smith discovered, although he didn't put it in those words, is that the, the wealth of a nation is its people. Uh, it's not gold reserves or anything of this nature. Uh, I mean, look at Russia. It has probably, from a natural resource perspective, is probably the richest country in the world. All right. But its political structure prevented that. Um, sure. And China is, is very industrious. I mean, we've had offices over there and then they'll work full time and then have a part time job on top of it. Um, so it, it's very, very each place has a different culture. Um, uh, I, when we had opened up an office in, in London, the, the wages were much lower than they were in the United States. And I said, okay, fine, look, I'll pay you U.S. wages and we get a two-week vacation. They said, no, I'm used to, you know, five weeks off. That's it. So it didn't matter if you raised the price in a salary, they wanted that five weeks off. Um, so a lot of it is culture. Uh, and, and that's what I think differentiates a lot of the countries. It's interesting, Martin, what you're saying, uh, when you say that, the people or the wealth, because that's almost precisely what the UN and the World Economic Forum um, are suggesting, but very underhandedly, because the biometric state, our identification, our genetics, that is what is becoming the new war. Well, they, <clears throat> um, unfortunately, they want to be able to control everybody. See, it it's mm. also stems from this theory um, of that a one world government will eliminate war. Uh, I mean, you can go to our site and there's a video that I posted there of the former president of France, Hollands, standing up in parliament alongside Merkel, explaining exactly that. The whole purpose of the EU was to end European war. Now, you know, it's a nice theory. You know, they come up, oh, gee, if there's only one government, then it's not going to declare war against another. But all you have to do is look at the history of the Roman Empire. I mean, how many civil wars were there? Um, one government does not solve that issue. Um, and, I mean, I've been in Europe for, you know, most of my life since I've been 13 years old, going back and forth. Uh, I've been in in Athens when they were protesting against Germans dressed up in Nazi uniforms. <laughs> you know? um, and every country you go to there uh, has memories of, of the past. I was in Yugoslavia before it broke up, and, and they were like saying that, oh, gee, you don't realize they, they killed 600 of us and threw us in a, in a, a common grave. And I thought I'd missed something on the news. And I said, gee, when did this happen? I, I didn't hear about that. Oh, about 700 years ago. I said, oh, yes, that one. Okay. Um, they, you know, the resentments live on for centuries over there. Uh, it, it's, uh, and I <clears throat> ended up, you know, a lot of discussions with uh, them in there in the EU. And I explained to them what made America great was not a single currency. It was a single language <clears throat> that everybody, it was fair, 
whoever was the last one off the boat was always discriminated against. It wasn't race, color, you know, or, or anything else or, you know, religion. It was basically language. You wanted a job. You had to learn to speak English to get a job. All right. So if the first generation struggled, okay, the second generation grew up. And then all of a sudden, if you ask an American, what are you go, well, I'm half German, half Irish, whatever. Well, you don't see that in Europe because the language barrier keeps them apart. So in America, everybody's mixed. Um, sure. You know, it's, Yo, it's not a big deal. And, and they just kind of looked at me. I said, it's not just the fact that we have a single currency. It's more than that. And so here you have, you know, Europe going down that path and it's not working. Uh, it, it's, you know, Europe is in highly prone to break apart again. And the one government doesn't do anything because you have <clears throat> different cultures and they're trying to force a unified culture upon everyone. And that's just not the way it works. Um, so, so each each country has its own, you know, political affiliations. I mean, you, you go t to, I was in Bavaria and... And they said, oh, today's a holiday. I said, oh, you know, what's what's the holiday? They said, oh, it's this the holiday we won the war. I said, which war was this? They said, oh, against Prussia. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, okay, that one, you know. Where the, the north was Protestant and the south, Bavaria, was Catholic. You know, so it's the same thing as in Ireland, north against south. Yeah. Um, so you have a lot of this resentment and... Um, like I said, to this day, they still celebrate that holiday in Bavaria. Martin, so part of your your legacy is um, Socrates um, and um, the prediction capabilities. Would you mind just elaborating um, in fairly layman's terms to those who don't know what that is? Um, sure. I mean, it, uh, I... <clears throat> My, you know, my father was a, a lawyer. He kind of pushed me, was trying to push me in the law. I really didn't want to become a lawyer. Um, so he pushed me more into uh, at least going to computers. So I learned, you know, back then it was like uh, full engineering. Uh, I had to do the, you know, actual design, uh, everything from the ground up. Um so when I really kind of left that and went into trading, um, I realized that I could write a program to do this. And uh, I, as a, a hedge fund manager, and, and that's different from being a fund manager domestically. Uh, there you're only looking out, oh, gee, what the Fed do? You know, they raise interest rates, lower interest rates or whatever. Um, as a international hedge fund manager, you have to see what's going on around the world everywhere. And we were in uh, Geneva back in the mid eighties and that's where all the money from OPEC was. Um, and I noticed back then that, you know, the money was starting to move really to Japan. And as the, the capital flows moved for investment, et cetera, the talent also moved. So a lot of the brokers I knew in, that were like at Merle Lynch or whatever in, in Geneva were suddenly in Tokyo. Um, and then when Tokyo peaked and crashed in 89, it, it was like, gee, okay, fine, what's next? Oh, Southeast Asia, let's go all go over there. So I began to see that money flows around the world as does the talent. So it, it concentrates in one particular area at a time. So Socrates basically is a computer and AI system that I, I uh, developed. Uh, and it, I was putting in absolutely everything, capital flows, every market, whatever. And I just really taught it how I would analyze. And without any rules or regulations saying, gee, if the interest rates go up, stock market goes down, none of that stuff. 
I just allowed it to, to look on its own and compare everything and correlate it. And one of the first things it did uh, in the early 1980s that kind of shocked me, uh, it uh, had come out uh, in 1980 and said that the uh, British pound, which was trading at about 240, was going to fall to par within five years and that Britain would no longer align with uh, Europe, but with America. Now, I thought this was completely crazy. Um, so then I had to develop a query system so I could ask it questions. How are you coming up with this? And sure enough, here the, the North Sea oil started really in 1977, and within three years was picking up the changes in the capital flows. And with hindsight, a human can say, oh, yeah, okay, fine. I see it. I understand. But a, a computer basically being non-biased would be able to do things that we don't necessarily see. Uh, then in uh, the mid-80s, one of our clients was the Universal Bank of Lebanon. And they had found a ledger in the basement where somebody wrote down the Lebanese pound every day. Uh, going back into like the mid you know 19th century, <clears throat> asked me if we could create a model for that. I said sure. You know, we put we put in the data, and then what came out was that their country was going to fall apart in eight days. I thought there was something wrong with the the data. I called them on the phone. I said, look, there's got to be something wrong with the data you sent me because it says you're going to fall apart in eight days. And very calmly, he said to me, so what, what currency do you think would be best? I said, excuse me? I said, I said, Swiss franc? Okay, fine, thank you. Eight days later, <clears throat> the Civil War began. We then had a client. It was Eight days Saudi on the Arabia. dot. Eight days on the dot. Yeah, on the dot. On the dot. Unreal. Had a, a client in um, <clears throat> Saudi Arabia. And he was big in shipping. And he called me, he says, uh, so what do you think gold's going to do? There's going, you know, um, <clears throat> Iraq's going to start attacking shipping tomorrow in the Gulf. I said, you tell me a war's going to start tomorrow? Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think gold's going to do? So <clears throat> I began to realize that um, if you know you're going to start some sort of a war, all right, you're going to move your money accordingly. So what the computer was picking up were the capital flows um, in advance. So by 1998, um, in June, I had stood up. We did a conference in London. And by then, I understood what the computer was, was forecasting geopolitical events. Um, and... I saw basically $100 billion going into Russia, but I saw $150 billion coming out. So I stood up and I said, okay, fine. Our, our computer is giving it about 30 days and that's it. Um, Russia's going to collapse. Well, what I didn't realize was that somebody from the London Financial Times had snuck in the back of the room. And he ends up putting that forecast on the front page of the London Financial Times on June 27th. Russia collapses. That's the long-term capital management crisis, the first time the Federal Reserve had to step in to bail out anybody. Um, and that's when the CIA kind of came to us and wanted like me to build this model for them. And I said, you know, sorry. Not, uh, it took me 17 years to build this thing. I'm not going to go down there and build one for you. I said, we'll run whatever study you want. And they said, nope, uh, we have to own it. I said, sorry, not for sale. <laughs> so that ended up being a little bit of a, um, com my confrontation with the government. But it, what <clears throat> has come out of this is that clearly it picks up the geopolitical things because, for example, if China was really going to start a war against the United States, it would sell its U.S. holdings of debt first. 
you don't then invade a country where the debt would then collapse. You'd lose all your all your money. So it you know it's understandable how it's doing it. Um, but it, if somebody knows what they're going, you know, about a war, they're going to move. And China's um, not selling its dollars. Not yet. <laughs> um, it's been changing its uh, maturity. So it's dr dropping from 30 year down to like, you know, two, three, five, you know, five year mm. stuff, um, which can expire rather rapidly and not renewed. Uh, that's that's probably the risk in the future. A part of that model, that prediction, is that there's an economic wave every eight and a half years. What does that mean? Uh, it turns out that uh, everybody understands there is a business cycle. All right, but um, it turned out that it, it is very regular. Um, and... Effectively, uh, everything's in, included in there from war, weather, you name it, it's there. Um, all this, you know, nonsense about climate change, uh, it is that's what it is. It's just nonsense. If, if you we have all the weather data going back, you know, um, <clears throat> thousands of years, uh, you know, it's been climate change that caused migrations, um, you know, out of Africa, you know, out of Asia, you know, uh, the Mongols invaded Europe largely because it was a tremendous drought. Uh, the sea people came from the north and, and invaded the south and wiped out the Bronze Age. Why? Because it turned very cold up there. Uh, they couldn't grow food. Uh, even... You can uh, look at some of the letters of uh, John Adams and stuff from the United States during the revolution and it's talking about how cold it was uh, and that the ground froze two feet deep and they couldn't plant any, any crops. Um, you know, the, the famous winter camp of, of George Washington at Valley Forge. Uh, a lot of the guys got sick and died because it was just too cold. Uh, uh, Napoleon, um, his invasion of Russia failed uh, because of, of really a, a major earth, you know, volcano erupted and created a volcanic winter, uh, and he lost uh, more than half of his troops and had, a, you know, trying to invade uh, Russia. So you you have to understand that uh, there is a lot more to all of this. That, that meets the eye, and it's all connected. Uh, the weather systems have created uh, wars even. Um, so it, it's very, very interesting to, to look at everything collectively and connect all the dots. Ancient Rome. Um, there were, people are migrate in to take advantage of, of the you know, booming economy. I mean, there were laws that even uh, Augustus had passed, you know, and he was the first emperor that you couldn't marry one of your slaves uh, and have children. You know, they wouldn't be part of uh, the Roman society because there was that many, I mean, people coming in. I mean, uh, it, was, it was quite different. Uh, and everybody wanted to, you know, to come to Rome, just as, you know, there's some studies showing that when um, China was coming out of uh, this and the cities were booming, they were leaving the, you know, the suburbs and going to, to the major cities. I mean, the same thing in the United States, you know, you know, these girls wanted to become movie stars, they were rushed out to California, you know, or people that wanted to be, you know, part of trading community, they would rush off to New York. Um, so these big cities throughout history have always um, attracted people for uh, its economic sense. So, you know, and then they, they expand and then they peak and then they die, just like everything else. Um, Rome peaked um, at about, a, you know, a little over a million people 
uh, and that was a, that was around 160, 170 AD, and. It doesn't sound like so much right now, but it took until the Victorian era for any city in Europe to ever get back to a million people. Uh, so it, it was that long. You're talking about almost 1,800 years before a city ever grew back to where Rome was. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> when Rome fell, uh, there the, that's where the, the term in Latin suburbium uh, developed. People left the cities because of corruption, the high costs, and they moved out to the suburbs, um, uh, started plotting their own land, and that ends up, you know, being more of a feudal type uh, economy that rises after the fall of Rome. Uh, so then one guy builds a castle, and they all run there for for protection. Uh, so it's been very interesting to watch the ebbs and flows of these things. Uh, but clearly everything is, is involved. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, th this nonsense with, poli with politicizing the climate change is really quite laughable. Uh, if you just look at, at this, I mean, when the weather turns warm, that's when civilization rises. When it turns cold, it contracts. Mm. Um, and what you have to understand is that, you know, the, the little ice age bottomed in the 1600s. So, yes, we were back to a natural warming cycle. And you have these people, oh, it's getting warmer oh, because of industrial revolution and, and fossil fuels and all this kind of nonsense. Uh, I mean, the first Clean Air Act was by, you know, the Emperor Justinian in 561 A.D., they were burning wood, okay, smog, too much, and and you burn wood, that's also CO2. I mean, so these are not something that's unique to today. Um, you know, you burn a forest, then you, you're going to create CO2. I mean, it's just the way it is. Or you have a volcanic uh, eruption. Yeah, I mean, uh, the problem with that is that there are a number of them starting to erupt right now. And that can actually be a very serious threat uh, because you get <clears throat> there. There's a book I could tell you to, to get the year without a summer, you know, 1816, when Krakatoa mm. went off. It threw up so much ash into the atmosphere that this it reflects the sun. So it was actually snowing in New York City in, in the middle of the summer in July. Sure. So it's called the year without a summer. Um and that's also a defeat in Napoleon. Uh, it got much colder than what he ever anticipated. So we have to pay attention to those things. And just our computer, we put all that data in, and it's it's very interesting. But when you go, um, when you allow just the computer to correlate it without any political bias, you see volcanoes increase basically when you go into solar minimum. Um, there's a few theories. Why does that happen? Um, that the, the when you go into solar minimum, more gamma rays tend to penetrate the Earth than in solar maximum. So maybe they help trigger that. Um, I mean, we don't really know, but I can tell you the correlation does exist. It's there. Um, does that have any? You know, is that the cause? Who knows? Mm. Um, but there's a correlation there that is serious because we're going into actually solar minimum. And uh, as that happens, you you do get more volcanoes erupting. And uh, the one just in Tonga, they, they said, is was at the level of Krakatoa. Wow. How long does it take for that to get around the Earth? I, we don't know yet. Um it could be up to a year, uh, and then that makes it even colder. And the problem is when the these volcanic winters that take place, that's when crops fail. Yes. When crops fail, then people are malnutrition uh, erupts, and then that correlates to rises in disease. Um, 
you know, that's part of the whole issue behind the Black Plague of the 14th century. It, simultaneously, it was very cold. Yes. So it, it, it all has an impact. Do you see um, some sort of collapse of the West, um, you know, in the distance? Well, yes. Uh, it's primarily Europe. Um, <clears throat> Europe, in 2014, the, the ECB lowered its interest rates to negative. Now, they are still negative today. Okay, so uh, it failed to stimulate the economy. I warned them at the time, you're going to destroy your bond market. They did not listen. And now it ends up being a question of uh, almost like the movie Dumb and Dumber, really. Um, you, you pass a, a rule before that pension funds, oh, have to be conservative. We want to make sure people are protected. So they tell them that they have to buy, depend upon the country, anywhere between 70% and 100% government bonds. Now you lower the interest rate to negative. A pension fund needs 8% on average just to break even. So you have most of your pension funds in Europe insolvent. Um, so this is... You know, when Klaus Schwab, if you look at his eight points, what is that? When he's saying you'll own nothing and be happy, it's largely a marketing uh, situation. That what's really taking place there is <clears throat> he's been on the opposite side of the table from me and advising governments and central banks, etc. Um, and I've been telling them, look, we, we have to reform. They would have to give up power. They don't want to hear that. Schwab is saying, you get more power my way. We basically confiscate all the assets. They'll own nothing and they'll be happy because we're going to eliminate all debt. All right. So by him saying that, it makes it sound like he cares for you. I'm going to help you. All right, I'm going to eliminate all your debt, okay, <clears throat> when, in fact, it's the government debt that's going to default. They can't pay it anymore. They can't sell it at negative rates. Who's going to buy this stuff? So they've wiped out their bond markets. I mean, I've spoken to the top three banks in New York. Uh, they will not lend any money whatsoever on a European government bond, period zip so they will not accept them as collateral for anything so you have europe is is in dire straits and i think in part that's what they also need this ukrainian war for but um they have to default and they will end up defaulting on their debt and they'll probably want to blame putin for that too but um i mean you say war but it's not really it's more theater well, they use that as the excuse to uh, to do all sorts of various different things. Uh, and, mm. um, you know, the, the joke in Washington is, is that, yes, the Ukraine war is going to be very, you know, we need it and we'll continue to fight it to the very last Ukrainian dies. <laughs> um, that's basically what's, you know, they're just it's just a proxy war. Um, so, you know. You have, if Europe defaults on its debt, you're going to have millions of people there with pitchforks going after these guys. All right, so how do you get away from that? That's what Schwab is saying. We're going to eliminate all debt and, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy. So by eliminating your mortgages, student loans, everything else that you owe, car loans or whatever, that's the cover for them to default on their debt. Right. So right. Yes. Then what happens? You come in with this guaranteed basic income. Ah, uh, the UBI. That replaces the pension funds. Okay. So you have to look at all this. It's very, very strategic what they're doing. 
All right. Um, yes. He then has in his eight points, the U.S. will no longer be a superpower. It will be shared among nations. That's the United Nations. Turn over the sovereignty to, to the U.N. This is that same idea of, of uh, the EU, one government, eliminate war. Uh, the climate change, they use that in saying, well, it's impossible for one country to fight climate change. So we need one that's authoritarian on the whole world. Yes. They're doing that with disease. Yes, the exactly. Okay, yeah. the same thing. The pandemic um, treaty. We'll be in charge of everybody in the world. Uh, yeah. And <clears throat> sure. <laughs> again, you know, I've spoken to some of these people. And I've had arguments with some. All right. They think that the only reason Marxism failed was because they did not have Europe and the United States as well. Had they had that as well as China and Russia, they would have been fine. Martin, is this one of the, the motivations then um, behind the implementation of uh, central bank digital currencies and, of course, by extension, digital ID. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, <clears throat> I mean, I've been at this for 40 years and, and I say there are no mirrors in government. It's never their fault. It's always us. All right. So um, they basically said, well, they wouldn't have a deficit if everybody paid their taxes. And I'd laugh and say, you, no matter what you collect in taxes, you'll always spend more anyhow. Um, but they, you know, they don't want to ever accept blame. And, and I can tell you, <clears throat> I think what really shifted them into high gear was when Trump was elected because he beat 17 career politicians. And now if you look at what they did. Sorry, and the, and the media, and the media. Yes, but suddenly what happened was it was no longer democracy, it was populism. So they changed the word and made it evil. So what you had at Davos in 2016, they were really upset or at set in 17 in January. They, they were just completely, really, really upset about this because the politicians had suddenly realized that they could be voted out of power. So that was, I would say, the watershed event that we have to change this system, eliminate the right uh, to vote, um, where you vote for maybe the local trash man who's going to pick up the trash and clean the streets. That's about it. Um, uh, you know, I find it ironic uh, with the propaganda, particularly against Putin. All right. Oh, he's uh, authoritarian. You know, it's anti-democracy. This is democracy against authoritarianism. Just look at the at the structure of Europe. The commission does not stand for election. The head of Europe does not stand for election. She's appointed by the other heads. All right. So they have copied exactly that type of political system. Putin's election is by the you know, the Duma, all the, you know, the people that, that are there. Yes, okay, fine. It's, it's, it's no different than Europe. It's no different than, than a lot of other things. I mean, democracy, we don't really have. We're, we live in republics. A democracy, we would have the right to actually vote. Do we go to war or we do not go to war? Uh, in a republic, you only vote for a representative. And that person is down there and he's supposed to represent you. Um, but, you know, I've been involved with politicians, you know, a long time. And it's just a joke. 
I mean, I can run for, for Congress and say, vote for me, I'll give you a lollipop and I'll give you whatever you want, whatever. And then I get down there and they go, okay, fine, we don't care about that. This is the way you're going to vote. You have to vote party line. So you see these votes, it's always down party line. So it, it's all propaganda. I mean, somebody can run for office and say, vote for me, I'll make this, I'll do that. And he can't, they can't do anything. They get down there, uh, they're one out of nearly 500 people. Um, so it's a republic, it's not a democracy. Yeah, so I mean, how much of this then that we're looking at in front of us is theater? And how much of it is real? Most of it is basically just theater. Um, <clears throat> they don't they don't tell you what the uh, the truth about any of this stuff is. Um, I mean, there are you know documents that have been declassified from the Clinton administration. <clears throat> right in there when. Um, there's a guy named Barisnovsky who was really trying to take over Russia with the oligarchs. And on the opposite side, it was the communists, the old hardliners. And uh, they were blackmailing Yeltsin. So Yeltsin, when he realized that he had been set up, he turned to Putin. And in the documents from the CIA, it says Putin is an unknown He's not affiliated with any party. <laughs> and what you hear today is absolutely the opposite of what they, you know, what they say. Basically, I mean, uh, oh, he's an ex-KGB and he wanted to uh, reestablish the USSR. That's all propaganda. That's what the communists wanted. And he stood against them, but he also stood against the oligarchs. Uh, he was the only one actually neutral between the two. Uh, so it's just fascinating how they, they like to uh, play things around. Um, how free is the West at the moment? I'm guessing the answer is not very. No, I mean, it's <clears throat> the, a lot of it. Uh, the press has been taken over. Uh, mm. it, it, it's just pretty horrible. Uh, I mean, even the appointee that, that Biden was going to put on his new truth mission, you know, uh, she even admitted that, well, you know, we're going to, you know, clean things up as we do on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and I mean, for most people don't realize, but even students in school are not allowed to, to quote Wikipedia as a source <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's that. politically motivated. I mean, it, it's just that's just the way it is. Um, so, Martin, um, with regards then to uh, the West, I mean, you're saying earlier that you do see a collision course on the horizon. Um, I'm guessing then by extension, that means that we're heading towards some sort of multipolar uh, world. Yes. Um, uh, look, we're headed into uh, what will probably be called World War III anyhow. Mm. Uh, but uh, in, in order for Schwab to, to put through this great reset, all right, and to grant the power to the UN that they were talking about, uh, the three obstacles were Trump, Putin, and Jing. All right. Um, you had to, you know, they got rid of Trump. Uh, and this whole war with Ukraine is the same thing. I mean, even Henry Kissinger came out and basically said, you know, the Donbass are, you know, <clears throat> they're Russians. So what do you want? You want Putin to leave? And then what are you going to do? Just go in and kill all the Russians because you want the land? I mean, uh, you know, and you have Zelensky saying we will not give up one inch. Uh, so, I mean, that's not very, you know, even Kissinger saying that's not the way, you know, you negotiate. This is something you you don't um, you're you're basically saying it's war to the bitter end. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's very interesting. And I, I think that it's is clearly a proxy war. 
they need that to keep it up. Um, and as long as you can keep up <clears throat> things of this nature, you, you, they're diversions. They needed a diversion coming out of COVID. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, their the death rate was minimal, really. Nothing more than any kind of a flu. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> this lockdown nonsense was uh, really instigated by a computer program that Bill Gates funded. Uh, I was given the source code by... Uh, someone in Britain uh, and asked to review it. I published it on our site. I mean, it was it was pathetic. It was, it was like a child's game of Sim City. That's it. it. It was like you guess at certain levels or whatever, and then it, it projects out whatever you want to put in there. So if you assume 20% of the people were die, oh my God, the, you know, the devastation is going to be, that's not a computer program. I mean, it was, it was just propaganda. Um, <laughs> and then they, you know, they, they said, oh, well, we overestimated the death rate in China. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's not objective, mm. but I don't know if they anticipated the ramifications. Uh, I suspect that they probably did not. You lock down the country uh, like this, you shut down the, the complete supply chain and delivery system. Um, I mean, I got emails from from farmers that had killed like 30,000 their chickens because they couldn't get them to market. Um, so now you end up with food shortages ravishing you know, the world. Um, you now take the Ukraine-Russia uh, war, and that is disrupting 30% of the world's wheat supply. It's like whatever they can do wrong, they have done wrong. Um, it, it's, you know, I don't know. I can't imagine that they actually understood what the ramifications were. When I meet with these people over the years, they are what I call linear thinkers. That they only see what's directly in front of their nose and that's it. They don't have any peripheral vision. They have no idea of anything else. And they try to reduce every situation to a single cause and effect. And it's never a single cause and effect. Um, so you have all these people, you know, oh, they died of COVID. Well, what else did they have? All right. Well, the, you know, the heart attack or whatever, that was irrelevant. You know, and there was a joke that a guy jumped out of a plane, forgot his um his parachute but he had covid so he died of covid you know <laughs> um and you know there was just so much corruption and it's here in florida there was a, a family's kid was he was killed in a motorcycle accident and they saw his name published in a list of deaths by covid they called the local tv station they called him <laughs> and said hey he died from a motorcycle accident Oh, oh, yeah, so sorry, we'll remove his name. Well, how many more were there? You know, it's it just like the whole propaganda system was, was in full boat. Um, so it makes it hard to see. But I don't, I'm not sure they're that smart. Um, the, uh, you know, then you have the Biden administration. I can tell you the people that are there. <laughs> uh, or just climate change that's it uh, and they got the perfect president who will just read whatever they, they stick in front of them well he can't um, he, he can't even finish a sentence uh, yeah I mean look he, he's, <laughs> he doesn't make these decisions I mean it's ridiculous but um, and <clears throat> I, I'm not just speculating on that I used to be part of the vetting process for people to want to run for president. Uh, 
before 1999. I would go meet with various different people, um, and it was I was supposed to be there to teach to tell them about the world economy and how it functioned, but I was also supposed to assess them. Did I think there was a light on? Did they understand what I'm talking about? Uh, then in 99, I was asked um, to go down to Texas to meet with Bush Jr. I said, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, they said, oh, but this one's different. I said, what's different? They said, oh, no, he's really stupid. And I was totally shocked. I said, why would you make somebody stupid president? I mean, everything before then was like, do you think he's intelligent enough? Then all of a sudden it flipped. And they said, well, you know, uh, he's got the name. So ever since 1999, you look at these people like Obama. He only attended 60 percent of his morning briefings. Um, Biden is, is like the ultimate for them. They hated Trump because. You go to one of these meetings with the um, the cabinet, and it, it, they're like children. They want power, all right? They don't want to be told no. And so with Biden, they basically got to do whatever they wanted to do. And you saw the disaster in Afghanistan. I mean, uh, the role of a president is to sit between these agencies and say, no, you do this and you do that. Um, with Biden, there was nobody there to do that. So you have each one doing whatever heck they wanted to do. So it just turned into total chaos. Um, so the problem we have uh, is that nobody knows who the real president is. Um, <laughs> It's kind of like the old rap song, will the real slim shady please stand up? You know? <laughs> um, but the the people there are mostly climate change zealots. Yeah. They realize they may be thrown out. All right. So they're deliberately trying to destroy as much capacity to produce as possible before that happens. Now, they're not rational. It's not a question of, okay, fine, let's make sure we have an alternative in, in place. No, they just want to destroy the fossil fuel now and worry about the replacement later. So you have fuel prices going up dramatically. And I don't think they, you know, they, they don't understand how the world works. So you had Pakistan... Um, Khan standing up and calling it a CIA revolution against him. No, it wasn't. It was just inflation. You take a lot of these third world countries, people are living hand to mouth. And you drive the cost of fuel up dramatically. It's a substantial uh, impediment to their standard of living. Yeah. So um, then you, you create wars in Europe with Ukraine. And so then capital moves to the dollar, as it did for World War I, World War II. As the dollar goes up, uh, what happens? You end up with emerging markets defaulting because they had issued debt in dollars. So Sri Lanka goes down, Lebanon goes down, etc. And that this is just the beginning. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? I... Our computers basically suggesting that we're looking at a collapse in, and basically Republicans form of government. Um, the other side of 2032, we get to redesign governments, more or less like the American Revolution, where it was the collapse of uh, monarchy. Okay, then we move to republics. This time it'll be the collapse of republics. They just don't work. They're too corrupt. Um, and it's the same thing that Julius Caesar confronted when he, you know, crossed the Rubicon. Um, and uh, even that was fake news back then. You know, they, you know, a lot of people, you, you know, listened to Cicero, who was part of the oligarchy. Um, the reason we have a 
you know, uh, Julian calendar is the example of how corrupt it really became. They were using uh, the moon, but they knew that was not correct. So the, the high priest, the pontiff Max, at his discretion, inserted the leap days. So they would bribe the, the, the head of, of the high priest. Well, we don't want to go to election right now, so give us a couple months, will you? Okay, fine. So when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, the, the calendar, which should have been, you know, winter was really summer. All right. Uh, so that's why, Joel, you know, he came in and made himself the high priest, reformed the calendar. So it's not discretionary. I mean, the level of corruption was immense. All right. And when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, all the cities opened their gates and cheered. The Senate, Brutus, etc. What did they do? They fled because they had no support. I mean, it would be the same thing as if there was, you know, million man march that went into Washington. You know, uh, Pelosi and, and her crew would would flee. It's the same thing. So um, this time we're going to have um, another opportunity to recreate government. I hope it would be more of a democracy. The direct right to vote at this time. Um, but unfortunately, we're also going to see a sharp rise in civil unrest, which a lot of these emerging markets will uh, default, things of this nature. Uh, the shortages that we have are going to push the inflation uh, up dramatically. Crude oil will probably exceed, you know, well over $200 next year. Um, and it's just looking at political chaos rising. I mean, Europe will fall. Um, th these are the, the consequences that we're looking at, particularly after 2024. Um, and 2024 is going to be probably the year from political hell. Um, it's not just, the, you know, Biden up for, for election. You're talking about Putin's up for election. Zelensky's up for election. The head of the EU's up for, you know, reappointment. Um, whatever you see out there right now is going to even change and get worse. And most likely the people that will come in will be reactionary to whatever the trend that we've had. Um so it, it may get much, much worse. Like all these people that demonize uh, Putin, uh, they should take a look at what's behind Putin. Yeah. The people behind him are very hard line. They're the ones out there threatening nuclear war and stuff like that. Putin is more of a historian. He knows that Kiev was the original place um, that, you know, the Russians, that was the first real capital city that they had. Uh, and, you know, the propaganda, oh, he invaded, trying to, you know, he's not doing well. That's all propaganda. If the way the U.S. goes in, just look at what they did in Iraq. The first thing you do is you take out the power grid, you take out the communications, and then you take out the water. He did none of that. So that shows he had no intention of conquering all of Ukraine. He wanted the Donbass, and that was it. All right, but I mean, he probably should have. Then that would have knocked Zelensky off the air all the time. But <laughs> um, uh, Martin, I know, I know that we've uh, we've kind of uh, come to the end of our of our time slot. But I asked you for a crystal ball reading, and may I just ask you for a little crystal ball reading to add to that? I'm in the bottom tip of Africa. Um, what what does your crystal ball see, at least for, if not South Africa, at least? I guess, Southern Africa, or at least by extension, BRICS? Uh, I would say that uh, Africa and uh, South America will probably do much better than the Northern Hemisphere and, and Australia. Uh, it, it's just, it's the political <clears throat> ramifications of the West that these guys with their debt are, has really well overextended. So we're looking at war, we're looking at shifts in, in 
a collapse in largely in sovereign debt around the world. Um, the, <clears throat> the dollar will rise uh, probably into 2024 before it starts to turn down. Uh, but the first rush will be as Europe uh, gets into a crisis, etc. cetera. Uh, China will eventually go into Taiwan. Um, they'll use the opportunity of all this political chaos to, to you know, to, to take Taiwan. Again, that's a, a psychological thing that to them that was part of China and they need it. Uh, simple as that. Uh, so we're looking at uh, a continued rise in, in geopolitical crisis around the world. Um, but I think that inflation is going to continue to rise. Energy prices are going to continue to rise. Food shortages will expand. Um, so I would suggest make sure you know you keep some of the freeze-dried food and stuff like that for your, for yourself. Um, it may come in handy. Where can where can people follow your work? Um, it's free. You don't even have to log into it. It's uh, at ArmstrongEconomics.com. Uh, if you do want to get into Socrates, the Socrates writes reports on over a thousand markets around the world every day. Uh, there's no human interaction to it. It's it's completely non-biased. It's a computer that does it, and we're not blocked in Russia, China, United States, everywhere. So it, 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 I think all the governments know that it's not a. Uh, it's written by a computer, so they're not threatened. Martin Armstrong, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining me in the trenches well thank you for inviting me don't go anywhere my name is germ this is germ warfare the battle of ideas if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com